Hello, hello, and welcome to the new episode of Pinkie Pod. Narf. I couldn't resist. Well, I could have, but I didn't want to. So there. Anyway. How you been since the last time I gave you an earful? I assume I have some returning listeners. Oh, God, I hope I have some returning listeners. And I hope you've told other people and that I have new listeners. Hi, new people. Sup? How you been? How you doing? So, you know, let's just get right to it, shall we? That's that's just how I do it. I don't have any fancy theme music or intro, you know. I don't know. Maybe one day it could be like... No, yeah. Nah, no, we're not going to do that. So poltergeist, it's a German word that basically just means noisy spirit, nice and direct, descriptive, exactly what it is. Now, that might not be what we think of when we think of it today. They're here. You know, it could have just been tapping on the wall footsteps, 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 simple things like that, where that we would say now like, oh, well, that's just a ghost. Did you get the EVP? Oh, please tell me you got the EVP. Now, poltergeist we think of these days is like the horror movie stuff, like, holy crap, get the fuck out of here, dude, run, except they never run, do they? They never run. Of course they don't run because then the movie would be over. The poltergeists are known for throwing objects, levitating things, making puddles, and have a little accident there, dude. Uh, Flooding, biting, gnawing, scratching. Okay, so how many horrible attempts at movie references have you caught so far? Stop. I need to stop. Let's see, they're known for all of that, and fire, as well as graffiti. Oh, yay, more automatic writing. Really doesn't sound like the best sort of roommate to have now, does it? You can kiss your security deposit goodbye, eh? Now, the majority of cases are in the U.S. and Europe. Now, I don't know if that's maybe because other cultures have other words for it that I didn't look up, or they just don't discuss it. Because some of these things that I've uh, looked up here seem very universal to me, such as how poltergeist cases most often are connected to domestic affairs, meaning it's connected to a specific family or person, you know, in their house. Definitely quite often focused on one person. But with a, shall we say, regular haunting, that's not the case. It could just be a remnant of something that happened on the property before you were ever there or wherever you are. You know, there's there's residual energy of an event. And if you leave or move out of the house, your problem is solved. Poltergeist, though, those sons of bitches will follow you. They stay attached to the family or person. And we can call that person the poltergeist agent. Yes, please. Could you get me booked on the next talk show for... (laughs) No, not that kind of agent. Now, as I touched on in the Borley episode, they are often connected to a teen or a child, usually but not always a female. And according to some research, uh, very common ages are from 9 to 13. And there's usually complex emotional family dynamics involved. Now, this doesn't mean that the family is fighting or there's abuse or they're horrible or doing anything wrong necessarily. I mean, teens have angst, hormones. You remember, don't you? I mean, I realize I'm about to be 54, but I remember. Ooh, did I just say my age? Yeah, so I'm 50 years old, damn it. 54. But teens have angst. I mean, Who didn't hate their parents at one point, right? Or, okay, even if you didn't hate them, you must have gone through the phase where you're like, man, my parents are so lame, you know? And and you had growing pains, as they say, issues at school, you name it. 
So what we might be able to say is psychokinetic manifestations of the human agent's repressed anger and emotions are what causes poltergeists. And most often this is self-directed anger. Clicking for you yet? Like, oh God, I hate myself. Did, did any of us really like ourselves when we were certain ages? I kind of don't think so. Now, it's rare for there to be any mortal danger like death, you know, or severe injury. And it also would make sense that poltergeists can appear after a traumatic event or a new source of stress. So what do the skeptics say? Well, about what you'd expect. It's trickery. Agents have accomplices. Uh, Some things I would say, I would agree, are, are very easy to fake. But I'm wondering, like, what about when there are several witnesses? I suppose they could all be in on it, too. But are they always in on it in every case, every time? I don't know. More on that later, maybe. But I have to say, though, even the sympathetic skeptics don't think it's fair to completely dismiss the human agent. It could be subconscious. They could be in a disassociated state. And, you know, I agree with this too. I don't think it's good to just dismiss the person because I've already mentioned a little bit that there's some psychology here. So who knows what's going on? It's a rather deep science. It's not just a simple horror film event. And I'm not going to get into all of that completely, but I think that there's some sensitivity required around some of these incidences, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Now, back to the skeptics, though. There are others who theorize it's natural phenomena, and I could agree with that. You you might have tremors. There could be a leak that you didn't know about. Who knows? But when they talk about wind, (laughs) I want to know what kind of wind it would take to, oh, launch my wine bottle across the room. You know what kind of wind that is? I think that's the kind of wind where you're like, honey, you need to grab the transistor radio and get your ass on down to the cellar. Woo, it's about to get hog wild. Yeah, that kind of wind. No, 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 no. And I think I have a very good point because natural phenomena accounts for very few cases. So we talked about the uh, skeptics. But then we have the people who are all in, baby. Oh, they are so all in. They believe it's mischievous spirits or even malevolent spirits. Or, God, I don't like demons. Okay, I said it. I got to tell you, though, sidebar here. Whenever the D word comes up, I'm just, if you could see me right now, I'm sorry, no offense, but I just start shaking my head because I I don't know about that whole, maybe it's because I've seen a lot of things where people pull this up way too quickly, too easily. Oh, that's a demon. Oh, that's evil. I don't even like the word evil a lot of the time. I kind of have an issue with that. I won't get into that entire discussion. Uh, I won't say that I never use the word, but demons, you know? I don't know about that. And then she was struck down by Beelzebub. Ah! I mean, some people think that the the person is even possessed. And I... (laughs) Full disclosure, you know, I'm not really into... At least not certain descriptions, you know, the entire heaven and hell thing. And I'm very aware that Satan is a construct and we could get into that entire history as well. Who knows? Maybe a podcast one day, but I digress as I often do. But I just don't really get into that D word. Now, you know, now, you know, it makes me twitchy. So let's just deal with the human agents, shall we? Keep me from being twitchy. Now, in the 1930s, psychologists and parapsychologists 
Nandor Fodor, he was Hungarian, theorized that it was the work of a human agent acting as a poltergeist focus. Now, parapsychology, by the way, is the study of mental phenomenon that isn't explained by orthodox science. Now, he was, at the time, an associate of Freud. Remember that. It's actually really interesting. I think I had mentioned in another podcast how uh, parapsychology was used in therapy. So Fodor is the, uh, I can't help but there's a Hodor, Hodor. Every time I see this name, oh God, it's just movie reference day, isn't it? Or well, series on that one, but I can't help it. Fodor <sighs> is the pioneer of our leading theory on poltergeist. I'm, I'm some kind of way right now, aren't I? Uh, this podcast, who the hell knows where it's going? I must be in a mood. So, back to Fodor. You know I'm going to keep doing it. Luckily for you, I'm almost done talking about him. So something he said was, they are external manifestations of conflicts within the subconscious mind. In 1938, he investigated the Thornton Heath poltergeist, a story I will tell you later. But he eventually decided... It was sexual trauma in the agent's childhood that had been repressed. Oh, I just spoiled it. Spiritualists, you may imagine, didn't like him too much for that because he'd been so skeptical. Fodor, I told you I was going to keep doing it, was dismissed from his post at the International Institute for (laughs) Psychical Research. I'm all over the place. Spiritualist Arthur Finlay, who founded the Institute, didn't approve of Fodor's research and resigned. Like the guy who founded it freaking quit. He was so pissed off. And Fodor was even attacked in the spiritualist paper Psychic News. And he sued them for libel. Drama. Oh, the drama. I swear, these podcasts, uh, they've been more interesting, the human drama, than the occult stuff. Like, God, what a bunch of drama queens. Now, if you want to know more about what Fodor did to be canceled, (laughs) I hate that term too, but I won't get into that one. You should check out his scientific papers. The psychoanalytic approach to the problems of occultism is one, and the poltergeist, psychoanalyzed, sounds practically like the same title, 1945 and 48, respectively. Now, in the 60s, German William G. Roll, project director of Psychical Research Center in Durham, North Carolina, expanded this theory, and we still use the phrase, a phrase uh, that he came up with, Recurrent Spontaneous Psychokinesis, or RSPK. He had poured over four centuries worth of poltergeist activity. That's some dedication, dude. Which solidified his belief that it was most often anger in a child or a teen. And by the way, he died in 2012. So he's fairly contemporary. He had a degree from Berkeley in philosophy and psychology. He went to Oxford, where he did parapsychology for eight years. He earned a Master of Letters degree there. He's totally worth looking up because he did a lot of research and did a lot of papers. And his most famous case was in 1984, the Columbus Poltergeist, where color photos were taken by a veteran newspaper photographer for the Columbus Dispatch that allegedly show Telekinesis events in action. That's actually kind of giving me goosebumps for some reason. And this was at the home of Tina Resch, a Columbus teen, R-E-S-C-H. I want to share some stories, though. So it would be so easy. Remember, click the links, click the links. Six hours later, where was I? So you should should look up the uh, Columbus poltergeist. 
Besides, I'm thinking that you would probably, I can't show you the pictures. If you can find the pictures, that's what you want. But also, FYI, it was a 1993 episode of Unsolved Mysteries, which many apparently claim is a hoax, but that would mean the photographer and other people were in on it. Yeah? So, I don't know. But let's get to some stories, shall we? So, I mentioned the Thornton, oh, I said Heath, health, poltergeist. Nope, it's a typo, pardon me, Heath. In the 1970s, Thornton Heath, England, a family was tormented by poltergeist phenomena that started one August night when they were woken in the middle of the night by a blaring bedside radio that had somehow turned itself on to a foreign language station. This was the beginning of a string of events that lasted nearly four years. A lampshade uh, repeatedly was knocked to the floor all by itself. They, They couldn't figure out why. During the Christmas season of 1972, an ornament was hurled across the room, smashing into the husband's forehead as he flopped into an armchair, reports Haunted Croydon. I don't know what Haunted Croydon is. They must be the people. This is on liveabout.com. So they say the Christmas tree began to shake violently. You come to the new year and there were footsteps in the bedroom when there was no one there. And one night the couple's son awoke to find a man in old-fashioned dress staring threateningly at him. The family's fear grew when, as they entertained friends one night, there was a loud knocking in the front door. The living room door was flung open and all the house's lights came on. Having the house blessed failed to rid the house of phenomena. Objects flew through the air. Loud noises were heard and the family would sometimes hear a noise which suggested some large piece of furniture had crashed to the floor. When they went to investigate, nothing was disturbed. A medium was consulted, and they told the family that the house was haunted by a farmer by the name of Chatterton, who considered the family trespassers on his property. An investigation bore out the fact that Chatterton had lived in the house in the mid-18th century, and Chatterton's wife now was joining him in causing mayhem. And often the tenant's wife would be followed up the stairs at night by an elderly gray-haired woman wearing a pinafore and with her hair tied back in a bun. If you looked at her, she would disappear back into the shadows. The family even reported seeing the farmer appear on their television screens wearing a black jacket with wide pointed lapels, high-necked shirt, and black cravat. Well, at least he dressed very, he's dressed very well for a farmer, don't you think? Sounds more like vampire after the family moved out of the house the poltergeist activity ceased and none have been reported by subsequent residents now you know what that's not a poltergeist now is it and as soon as i was i was reading that because i am learning this with you at the same time i skimmed these a little bit but i wanted to hear this along with you As soon as they said they were seeing a ghost, I'm like, well, that's not a poltergeist. That actually sounds like, well, maybe in the old sense of the term, he was definitely a noisy couple of ghosts. But the fact that the family moved, well, hang on a second. Oh, the family moved and there's no more activity in the house. Well, hang on a second. Is there any follow-up with this family? Oh, God, I should have... Okay, maybe we'll have a second for me to Google that at the end. There's no link here to click. (gasps) Well, either it followed the family or it didn't, because that's the end. That's the end of the story. There's... Huh. Maybe they just didn't like those particular people, eh? Well... That was disappointing. Let's move on. The Enfield poltergeist case. I have to go back to that Thornton Heath one later, though, because they said that um, Fodor investigated this and everybody was pissed off. Right? That was the one. Well, this is terrible. I'm going to Google that in a second. The Enfield poltergeist case. It's another English ghost. 
this one in Enfield, North London, made headlines in 1977. The activity seemed to center around the daughter of Peggy Harper, who was a divorcee in her mid-40s. And again, it started in August, late at night. Janet, age 11, and her brother Pete, age 10, complained that their beds were jolting up and down and going all funny. As soon as Mrs. Harper got to the room, the movement stopped. And as far as she was concerned, her kids were making it up. But things got more bizarre from there. Shuffling noises, knocks on the wall, were followed by a heavy chest of drawers sliding by itself across the floor. Mrs. Harper promptly got her children out of the house, there you go, end of movie, and into the garden, but found no one. Soon they also heard the knocks on the walls, which continued at spaced out intervals. So clearly they went back into the house. At 11 p.m., they called the police, who also heard the knocks. And one officer even saw a chair move across the floor. And he later signed a written statement to confirm these events. Hmm. Several people were witness to the events that occurred in the following days. Lego bricks and marbles were thrown around the house and often hot to the touch. In September, Maurice Gross of the Society for Psychical Research came to investigate. Gross claims that he experienced the strange happenings. First, a marble was thrown at him from an unseen hand. He saw doors open and close by themselves and claimed to feel a sudden breeze that moved from his feet to his head. Gross was later joined in the investigation by writer Guy Leon Playfair, and together they studied the case for two years. The knocking on the walls and the floors became an almost nightly occurrence. Furniture slid across the floor and was thrown down the stairs. Drawers were wrenched out of dressing tables. Toys and other objects would fly across the room. Bedclothes would be pulled off. That would be like sheets and such. Water was found in mysterious puddles on the floors. And there were outbreaks of fire followed by their inexplicable extinguishing. Man, they are ticking off all the boxes, aren't they? The case became decidedly unnerving when the spirits revealed themselves. Like it wasn't before. <laughs> they revealed themselves through Janet. Speaking in a deep, gravelly voice, the spirit announced that his name was Bill and he had died in the house. And this has been verified. Have you got chills yet? Have you? Have you? The voices in the phenomenon have been recorded on tape and film, and Playfair has written a book about the case called This House is Haunted. <laughs> nice and simple. Dude, this fucking house is haunted. Despite the documentation, however, much controversy surrounds the case. Skeptics claim that the case is nothing more than the work of a very clever and mischievous girl, Janet. The poltergeist activity always stopped when she was watched closely and when she was taken to the hospital for several days to be tested for physical or mental abnormality, the phenomena, the phenomena ceased in the house. Mm. Some researchers believe that Janet taught herself to speak in the strange male voice and that photos of her levitating in her bedroom merely were just a, a mid-capture of her jumping off her bed. So was this poltergeist case just the result of, an, they say, attention-seeking 11-year-old? But as I mentioned before, I kind of like to have a bit of sensitivity about this, and she might have had something else going on. I have now clicked... Let me hear you say my name. Come on. Oh, no, 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 no. Stop, stop. I'm not... <laughs> so if you go to liveabout.com and look up this Enfield poltergeist... I thought I was just clicking on a link for photos. They've got the recording. And I've decided that at the moment, I really don't want to hear this voice. I am here all by myself. Mm -mm. Nope. Nobody. Nope. Nope. You are welcome to look that up. But I did get a glimpse of the photograph. And it does kind of look like, to me, she's caught just in mid-jump off the bed. The way her legs are and stuff. Yeah. So... That one could just be the classic case of a poltergeist. Let's see. So then we have the Battersea poltergeist. 
Now this one is kind of famous and there's pictures here and, and photographs and newspaper clippings. Uh, this one I'm at theargus.co.uk. The Battersea Poltergeist, the story of Shirley Hitchings. A woman who fled to Sussex to escape from a terrifying poltergeist says she spent over a decade in fear it would strike again. She was haunted by a mysterious being named Donald when she was just 15. 15, there's a teenager. In what became one of Britain's longest and most terrifying accounts of a haunting, Shirley and her family appeared to be plagued by the spirit. Objects would fly around rooms. Fires broke out spontaneously. Mysterious messages were even left around their home in 63 Wycliffe Road, Battersea. So Shirley, who at the time of this was 80 years old, said that so much was written about it at the time, she wanted to say what really happened. Although she is nervous, it might bring Donald back. She says, I lived through the blitz, and I remember the bombs dropping. It was the same level of noise. The sound was coming from the roots of the house. It all began when Shirley was a teenager, when she returned to her bedroom to find an ornate silver key resting on her pillow. None of the family recognized it, and from then on, strange things began to happen. The household was woken by a loud banging that appeared to be coming from the ceiling and walls, but the events soon began to focus on Shirley. Objects would move, a clock fell from a shelf, and a chair flew through the air by itself. Most shockingly, a pair, a pile, I'm sorry, I'm reading it as written, a pair, a pile of tea towels, yeah, a pile of tea towels were set alight, and Shirley was even thrown out of her bed, the covers ripped off. She told the son, I heard scratching coming from my headboard. It was horrendous. I'd say, Daddy, Daddy, make it stop. I didn't know what was happening to me. But everybody was pointing the finger at me. I knew I was not doing this. I'd always been brought up to be honest and never lie. Dad asked me at one point if it was me, and I told him no. And he said, that's good enough for me. What a nice daddy. Shirley and her father were questioned by police after they received reports that the devil was being summoned. Somebody tried to rat that. See? See why I don't like that? Grandmother Ethel was convinced Donald was the evil spirit and threw holy, threw holy water over Shirley, and it didn't work. She recalled, Donald went berserk. The crucifix went flying across the room, and her curtains were left in shreds as if someone had got a knife to them. Shirley was unable to get a job and says she lost all her friends because of Donald. However, the family got used to Donald as the years went on, and he was even accepted as one of the family. Hold, 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 stop, cut, cut. What? They began to accept him? Are you serious? <laughs> well, I guess if your only choice was accept it or be terrorized by it, Well, I guess maybe you could you could try to make friends with it. I don't know. I'm a little... <laughs> so anyway, in 1965, Shirley and her husband, Derek, moved to Bognor Regis, where they had a son, David, who is now 54, and a daughter, Karen, now 52. But Donald followed them. That sounds pretty classic so far, doesn't it? Shirley told the paper... He'd leave messages telling me what my parents were doing and tell them what Derek and I were doing in great detail, and he would snitch on us. And then suddenly, three years later, Donald fell silent. He left a final message with her parents saying he would leave the family in peace, and he said goodbye. And the key was never found again. <laughs> well, that's an interesting one now, isn't it? You can apparently, if this is still up, I don't, when was this written? Actually, it might be February 5th. The, I, when I Googled this, it was all over the place. 
Uh, it's, it's still very famous. Um, apparently, Radio 4, the Battersea Poltergeist, is available on BBC Sounds app. So what do you think about that one? What do you think? I think that one followed her around, too. It might have been her, you know. And I think she may have legitimately not thought that it was her. But as we know, it could be subconscious. She might have had some uh, some repression going on there. All right. I might have sounded distracted there for a minute because I was... I said I wanted to uh, know more about this Thornton Heath thing because that was just a ripoff. I can't leave it like that, and I can't leave you like that. So I Googled something, and one of the first things to come up is occultworld.com. Maybe this will be better. It looks longer. Let's find out together. The Thornton Heath poltergeist is a case involving a house in London haunted by a most unusual poltergeist in 1938. It was centered on Mrs. Forbes, the mistress of Thornton Heath. Now, they don't mean Thornton is the place. You know, she was in charge of the place. Not that kind of mistress. There we go. Here's Fodor. She was described by investigator Nandor Fodor as suffering from poltergeist psychosis. Fodor asserted that the psychosis was an episodic mental disturbance of schizophrenic character and that Mrs. Forbes' unconscious mind was responsible for the activities finally determined to be fraudulent. Fodor eventually identified the case as sexual trauma that had occurred in Mrs. Forbes' childhood and had been repressed. The full story, however, was not told until 1945 when Fodor, director of research of the International Institute for Psychical Research, gave a lecture at the Association for the Advancement of Psychotherapy and published it in the Journal of Clinical Psychopathology. The delay was a result of public and professional criticism directed at Fodor as a result of his emphasis on the psychological aspects of the case. Matters became so intolerable to Fodor that he successfully sued some of the critics for libel. There, I was wondering if he won the case. Eventually, however, Fodor was vindicated by winning recognition for his theory. Now, Mrs. Forbes, a woman of 35 years, lived at Thornton Heath with her husband and son, and from his very first day of of observation, Fodor entertained the notion that Mrs. Forbes could be causing the activities by normal means, despite her visible signs of distress in reaction to the activities and his lack of proof. At first, Fodor was the sole eyewitness to the many poltergeist incidences taking place in the house. He suggested that Mrs. Forbes should be studied at the Institute where he and his colleagues would keep an eye on her. Precautions including having her undress for a body check and having her wear special clothes for easy viewing of any sleight-of-hand tricks. But the perplexing incidents continued at the Institute. Dishes floated and crashed to the floor. Glasses flew out of Mrs. Forbes' hand. Objects from Thornton Heath mysteriously appeared in the Institute, which was 10 miles away. And they clattered to the floor. Wow. Objects suddenly appeared in Mrs. Forbes' hand or inside a box. Okay, a, a break here for a second. If this is fake, if it was fake, wouldn't that mean that everyone in the Institute was in on it? Wouldn't that mean that Fodor was in on it? Except he's the one who's saying it was all her. Hmm. At the same time as he was gathering evidence of poltergeist activities, Fodor was investigating Mrs. Forbes' psychological background. He found enough material to conclude that she was a neurotic with a disorganized psyche. Her past was replete with incidents of hysterical reactions, and here's why I want to note that at certain times in history, and sometimes even now, women in particular were quite often to be considered hysterical for some very normal things. I don't want to cast dispersions on her. I haven't looked her up, so I feel I need to note that. There, I said my piece. 
So, he also said she had a disassociated personality, which included hearing voices, having visions, and signs of lapsing unconsciousness. Mrs. Forbes was even believed to be bent on self-punishment, and she revealed physical signs of self-destructive attempts. One alleged experience with an apparition at Thornton Heath that tried to strangle her with a necklace left her with burn-like marks on her neck. Another time, she was reportedly clawed by a phantom tiger, which left five long wheels on her arms. And another time, oh my God, she claimed that a vampire had visited her during the night, bit her, and left two puncture marks on her neck. I am so glad I googled this. Aren't you so glad I looked up some more? You're welcome. Fodor and other eyewitnesses at the Institute watched Mrs. Forbes as she appeared to be choked by some unseen hand, which also left marks on her neck. Fodor explained this phenomenon as Mrs. Forbes intensely wishing the death of a man she saw in a vision. In her imagination, she identified so strongly with him that she had him hanged in her own body. This is just wild. This is wild. Fodor was still certain that Mrs. Forbes was using trickery hiding objects in her clothing that she would quickly retrieve while seeking to distract her observers with another activity. But didn't they say they had her in special clothes? Maybe not all the time. Once Photo requested that she be stripped in daylight so that she could be examined for secreting these small objects that seemingly appeared from nowhere and fell to the floor, nothing was revealed. But Fodor knew that no proper conclusions could be made without either a medical or x-ray examination. Did, did, did he think she had shoved them up? Yeah, okay, never mind. Initially, she objected and then agreed. Mrs. Forbes had the x-ray. Oh, and thereby proved Fodor to be correct. Two small objects were seen to be held under Mrs. Forbes' left breast They later appeared in her hands after she had allegedly collapsed. Okay, but I just want to know how busty was she? Could she hide like a plate under there or a cup? (laughs) This is wild. This one event convinced Fodor that Mrs. Forbes was fabricating the hauntings. Hmm. At the same time, she demonstrated hysterical reactions such as abdominal swelling to being prevented from revealing the objects from their secret places under her clothing. Oh, her, it sounds like she had the swelling when she was prevented from revealing the objects. Fodor further became convinced that Mrs. Forbes knew what she was doing and took great delight in fooling her observers. Yet, he believed that such a case demonstrated the need for a new departure in psychical research, one that sought to understand the mental processes that go before or along with such practices, no matter how fraudulent. In Fodor's opinion, Mrs. Forbes' choice of objects, her obvious signs of distress before she revealed them, and many of her monetary hallucinations all pointed to the unconscious nature of her behavior. I... I think I can understand why the spiritualists were a little upset with him. Granted, they probably were just going to be upset because it was a religion to them, so they probably didn't like anybody casting aspersions at it. But even as I read that, you know, it sounds like he's on the one hand calling it trickery, but at the same time he says it's a mental thing. And... That sounds a little contradictory to me. I wish that I could pick his brain. Don't you wish we could talk to him right now? We're, woo time for a seance. No. But, you know, it's like on the one hand, she says it, he says it's subconscious, but then he accuses her of trickery and, and deceit. 
So I don't know. Sounds like something that we could very much look deeper into. I could probably sit here and Google some more, but I, I'm not going to. I might look into it more later, though, because that is uh, pretty crazy, isn't it? That is, that is crazy. I even see that there's some little videos. Yeah, if you Google this, um, woof. Many, many, many websites. Um, hauntedhovel.com. I'm not reading it. I'm just telling you there's another one. Like Thornton, like Thorn, Thornton Heath Poltergeist. And you'll get... Uh, you know what I say? What, what I think about this is that I'm going to go back to having maybe some sensitivity. Maybe she was, maybe she was crazy. Maybe she was crazy. In which case I'm, I'm going to have sympathy for her though, because what could have happened or what state of mind would you be in to do things like that? And you know, how do you make your abdomen swell? How do you make your neck look like it's burned? Unless nobody was in the room and she heated up the object first. But he said right there that they observed her being choked. And he he relays this fantastical story of, well, there was another man in her body that she had hanged. Well, dude, what the fuck is that? If that's faking, damn, she was good and you should have given her an award and, a, and her own... TV show. <laughs> Wait, was that before TV? Well, bring her back and give her her own TV show for God's sake. She'd go viral right now. How do you do that? How do you do that? And you know, that's not the only story where people have had stuff like that happen. Uh, I think that's a, a good way to, to wrap up this episode is to talk a little bit about even if it's not actually a ghost and we keep coming back to this I feel like I keep coming back to it in the podcast of how it your mind is maybe so much more powerful than than we have any idea the amount of energy that you would have to unleash to make marks on your body or or maybe maybe it isn't that difficult if we just knew how to do it consciously. Could you imagine if you could do that? We would be like real X-Men. Don't tell me you don't like the idea. Have you ever just, you know you have. You know you've just sometimes just wish you could smack a bish. Oof. You know, maybe it's better that we don't consciously know how to do this all the time because people can be horrible enough without uh, having superpowers <laughs> but still just, oh, just a little bit right just a little bit you know a little telekinesis a little seriously though <laughs> I'm still tripping on that thing about you know she was so angry at the guy that she hanged him in her own body or that doesn't even make sense is that like quasi-possession she hanged herself to hang him. Like, wow. <laughs> Mind-blown emoji. I had no idea that that case was that crazy. Uh, that'll teach me to do more Googling before I record the podcast. On the other hand, wasn't it kind of fun to discover it together? I got to learn this at the same time you did. Or maybe some of you listening have actually looked into this before. But some of us are sitting here going, holy shit. Holy shit. Whoa. <laughs> I had no idea it was that crazy. Thank God I looked it up. I just, that kind of, seriously, that kind of um, mental kinesis, energy, kinetic, is just incredible. Because even scientists are saying that this is possible. And, and even that guy, Fodor, back then, 
is on the one hand, you know, he's, I think that if I, if I really think about what he was probably trying to say is even though he said trickery, I don't think he was necessarily just, he's just saying that it wasn't a ghost. And yeah, she pulled a couple tricks, but the other stuff he is saying was made possible by her subconscious mind. You know, that's psychology. So he took that seriously. So seriously that he got canceled. Well, they tried to cancel him, but he's like, ha ha, I'm still gonna, I'm gonna get recognized and I'm gonna sue you and I'm the winner. I know who the winner is. Yeah, so, wow. Pardon me while I just, uh, my, my mind is blown, people. So what do you think? Do you think this is just all crap? You know, do you think that, that most of it is bullshit? Do you think that there actually are what you could call poltergeists that are just nasty, angry, stompy, noisy spirits? And because both of both things could be true. Do you think that people manifest this through their own psycho psycho? I didn't mean to say, well, this was kind of psycho, but their um, mental energy. I lost my word. I keep wanting to say psycho. What am I trying to say? Psychic. Thank you. Thank you. Little voice in my head. Psychic energy. Imagine what you could do if you could really harness that. I, I don't know. I, it might be a little scary to think that if you could consciously harness that. I don't know. Let's get to work on that, shall we? I mean, what kind of mind exercises could we do? I don't want to have to go through any trauma for it, though. You know, if I have to go through a trauma, I think I'll just skip it. I think, you know, I'm good. I'm good. I, I don't really need it. It's not that important. Yeah, it's not that important. So what time we got here? You know, I could possibly read one more. Do you want to hear one more? Because I do have one more queued up. It's kind of short. I've got the short version of it. Sure, why not? The Strange Unexplained Baldoon Poltergeist Mystery. The strange story known as the Baldoon Mystery is a legendary ghost story that is part of the folklore of Wallaceburg, Ontario. See, I got us out of Britain. No offense, Britain. In 1829, the family of John MacDonald had a picturesque two-story frame house in a Scottish settlement named Baldoon near the town of Wallaceburg, Ontario. The story goes that the family suffered an extraordinary series of poltergeist attacks culminating in their house being Burn to the ground. There's a lot of fire in these. Whereupon they moved in with their father nearby only to have the attacks continue unabated, so it followed them. The McDonald family claimed they heard noises of people marching through their kitchen, saw bullets and stones come through windows, and, started, and stated fires started around the house. Man, I, I didn't do this on purpose, but all of these poltergeists, they, they liked fire, didn't they? Dishes of water would rise of their own accord from the table. The tongs and shovel bang against each other on the hearth. Chairs and tables fall over with a loud crash. And even that sober domestic creature, the kettle on the hearth, would toss off its lid, tip over on one side, and suddenly... As if seized by, man, they really like to say unseen hands, don't they? Unseen hands. Those unseen hands are getting a lot of mileage here. Would dash itself in a paroxysm of fury on the floor. Oh, that's great. Paroxysm of fury. Fantastic. Who wrote this? Who wrote this? Wait. Unexplained mysteries. Oh, I don't see an author's byline. Paroxysm of fury. Now I lost my place. Here we go. An Indian knife with a blade 10 inches long was violently dashed against the window frame and its blade stuck fast in the casement. Many visitors who witnessed such incidences, incidents firsthand. I'm going to have to wrap this up. I can't, even, I can't even talk anymore. 
incidents firsthand, along with statements offered by 26 family members, relatives, and neighbors who were there and were party to the strange events. 26 family members witnessed it. Freaked out by the strange events, the McDonald's finally enlisted the aid of another local woman who claimed to be a white witch. This witch told them to make a bullet Hmm. out of silver and shoot a black-headed goose with it. And if they wounded the bird, the witch would be wounded also. I'm going to assume they're talking about a black witch. (laughs) She's the white witch there. Yeah. Supposedly after McDonald used the bullet to break the wing of the goose, he encountered an old woman seated in a rocking chair on her front porch with a broken arm. And after that point, there were no more disturbances at the McDonald farm. (laughs) There's actually a picture of a beautiful little plaque that obviously must be at this place. It's all done up. You know, you've seen him before. The Baldoon Mystery. Near this site was the homestead of John and Nancy MacDonald, members of Lord Selkirk's 1804 settlement. The family home was the scene of many strange events in the 1830s. An aged neighbor woman had cast a spell of bad fortune on the McDonald's, which could only be broken by a silver bullet shot into a black goose that frequented the area. This McDonald did, and it was later discovered that the old woman had also been inflicted with a similar wound that same day. The spell was broken. The bizarre happenings developed into local lore known as the Baldoon Mystery. <laughs> oh, I think that was a nice one to end on. It's, it's, uh, it's a little bit whimsical. I, I kind of dig that one. And... Oh, I don't know about you, but I feel like my tone has been a little off tonight. I apologize, but I've also just recorded almost an hour, and I'll be damned if I'm going to stop it and start over. The subject matter should be interesting enough anyway, right? And, oh, close that laptop. And that brings to a close this episode of Pinkie Pod. If you like anything I do here, and if you don't mind me tripping over my words and being ridiculous... I do hope you'll visit patreon.com slash pinkyswearpress. For as little as $1 a month, you can help me with my craziness and maybe help me, you know, in the future, if maybe I should edit some of this, have some outtakes. I don't know. You can also visit me at podpinky on Twitter, pinky underscore pod underscore cast on Instagram, Pinky Swear Press on the Evil Facebooks, and my own website, PinkySwearPress.com. Pinky Swear Press is a thing I had trademarked like a year or two ago, and I'm finally getting mileage out of it, all right? So it's just Pinky Swear Press, this Pinky Swear, Pinky, Pinky, Pink, Pinky Pod, Pinky, Pinky, Pink. Good thing I don't hate pink. I hope you'll join me again next time when I will, uh, I will speech better, (laughs) hopefully. And that is that. Thanks for listening. Take care.